What up, peeps? Welcome into Unscripted and Unprepared, brought to you by Real Screen Magazine. I'm Jimmy Fox, and this episode is my sit-down with Danny Gabai, head of Vice Studios. I had never met him before. This was literally our first face-to-face ever. You never know what to expect in a first encounter. He's a great guy. Great guy. An extremely smart guy, as you're about to find out very early into this podcast. Brilliant guy. Probably too smart for our business. We could probably use him elsewhere. We, 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 could, we could use a Danny working on cancer, working in politics, but I digress. Danny has been behind some fantastic documentaries, Vice Studios, amazing taste, amazing filmmakers, amazing projects. Danny oversees all elements of Vice Studios, scripted television, motion picture, nonfiction, premium documentaries. We talked about uh, his relationship with Chris Smith, them having worked on Jim and Andy, which was the Jim Carrey documentary about him working on playing Andy Kaufman. Uh, Also, with Chris Smith, he had done the Fire documentary, the Fire Festival documentary for Netflix. I didn't have much time with Danny, but I really enjoyed it. He's a fascinating guy. We talked about his love for movies, growing up in Beverly Hills, and turns out he's a fellow Marx Brothers nerd. Yeah, who knew? Who knew? This is my sit down with Danny Gabai. I hope you enjoy it. Nice to meet you. Good to meet you. Am I finding you in a busy, busy day right now? Uh, it's a little busy this morning, but some people know as, as, an e- as an email pops up and you're as an email pops. I, I'm going to actually mute my notifications so this doesn't happen every two seconds. Mildly tech savvy. There you go. Okay. Uh, no, are you an LA guy? Yeah, I'm an LA guy. Now, did you grow up out here? Yeah, I actually I grew up LA, born and raised. Oh, what part? Uh, Beverly Hills, slums of Beverly Hills, basically like um, uh, Palm between uh, Gregory and Charlieville. And did you go to BH High? I did. Okay, so walk me through the alumni. Oh gosh, Beverly Hills. I mean, your your era. My, my era, all, all these people were older than me, but Mila Jovovich was there, Angie Voigt, who became Angelina Jolie. Um, who else was there? That was actually interesting. A musician called Ariel Pink, um, who went by Ariel Rosenberg at the time. Um, all, sorts, all, all sorts of interesting people. So when Mila... My, 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 my Karen, the record executive, was three years older than me. So when Mila Jovovich is going to school at BH High, is she, has she already booked Days and Confused at that point? Or is that just out of high school? You know, that that didn't really hit my radar until my senior year of high school, and she was already gone by then because she was a little bit older than me. So that must have happened while I was there, but I don't think it I don't think it came out till right when I was getting out of there. I can't imagine. Yeah. I can't I can't imagine. Like high school's tough enough, man. But then yeah. when when the when the cool kids at your school are actually the kids of like famous Hollywood, you know, moguls and Oscar totally. winners and whatnot. I can't. So what was that like for you? What kind of kid were you in high school? Were you always kind of more on like, I love entertainment? Were you bookish or were you like Mr. Popular? No, I, I was a, I was a funny kid in high school. I mean, I, I was super into film, just completely obsessed with film. I also played guitar in a band and that, oh, ended, really? that ended up consuming massive amounts of my life. Um, but then I had a twin sister and my twin sister and I were always vying to be the valedictorian of the class, which, which was just a little bit confusing because she was kind of Miss Perfect and I was convinced that I was going to go and be a rock star, which was really confusing. Um, wait, wait, I got to talk before you go further, Danny. What was the band name? 
the band was called in high school the band was called autobox and it was mostly a bunch of japanese foreign exchange students in me. <laughs> i think i was the only guy in the band that was not a japanese foreign exchange student and did, did either you or your sister end up taking the valedictorian crown uh, my sister did because oh. because i was on the track team which lowered my gpa slightly Wait, why would just being on the because, track? Because we were all we were all in AP classes, which would get you five points instead of four points. But being on the track team automatically got you four points for being on the track team. Oh my god, I did I never that never even occurred to me that an extracurricular would factor into your GPA. Yeah, so she had a five GPA and I had something like a four point nine eight. But we got the exact same score on the SATs, which was also a little creepy. No, come on, the exact same number? Yeah, same number, same breakdown. We we actually missed the same question. No. I love that you say the same question as if, did you only miss one question on the entire SAT? Yeah. yeah. Wait, are you serious right now? Yeah. So you're like a certified genius, Danny. You and your sister are like- No, I mean- like, Wait, hold on. That, that's like, wait, hold on. You, so you one question short of like a 1600? Were you my era of no. the SAT where it was- Yeah, it was, it, was out of, it was out of 1600 because it was the late 90s. It was a verbal question or a math question? It was one math question. Well, you got to walk me through this. You and your sister both missed the one question. Do you remember what it was? Oh no, I'm so, I'm sorry. We because we got eight hundred. It was it was a verbal question. What was it? I couldn't even tell you anymore. It's been that's incredible that you guys missed this. Okay. Years. Well, yeah. your parents must be proud. Yeah, my, uh, the the best part was we were very competitive with each other. And when she got her when we got her score, she opened hers up first, and then she started taunting me, and then I opened mine up, and there wasn't really <laughs> anything we could do about it. Man, I've never heard such a sibling rivalry before. Did you guys go to the same college? No, no, no. So I, we, we went to different colleges. So what ended up being really weird was after be, thinking that I, you know, trying to work on my jaded rock star image for four years of high school, I um, like maybe second beginning of my first semester of my senior year, I suddenly woke up one morning of this revelation that I was going to throw my life away. And I decided to become super hyper focused on the idea of becoming an investment banker, which was a very like weird last minute pivot. And this is in I, high school. This was in high school. Okay. Um, I started watching Wall Street all the time. I was going to say, what was the influence? Yeah. You know, once again, I was a movie fanatic. So I, I think I probably ended up seeing Oliver Stone's Wall Street and then just decided that I was going to remake my persona that way. I start, I literally started wearing sweater vests and dress shirts <laughs> to school. And I ended up only applying, I ended up applying to the Warden School at the University of Pennsylvania on early acceptance and got in and locked myself into that then that's a whole other kettle of fish because I ended up going to business school and wondering what the hell I did with my life and <laughs> kind of swinging back to the whole music bum, bum musician thing for a while there but I ended up in business school she went to a little liberal arts college and okay. now I'm a movie producer and she's a corporate tax lawyer at Deutsche Bank so <laughs> we've been completely completely inverting with each other wait so you're the California kid that goes to University of Pennsylvania yeah, how, that how was an was, interesting class, by the way. If you how want to talk was, about interesting alums. Yeah. Well, okay. What was that? What was that alum? Well, so when I when I was a freshman, uh, Donnie Trump Jr. was was a senior. Oh boy, here we Ivanka, go. Ivanka transferred into my class at some point. Whitney Cummings was in my class. Uh, Teddy Schwartzman, the film financier, was, sure. was in my class. Yeah. No so way. All sort all sorts of entertaining people there. I feel like the world should have known by now that Whitney Cummings was in the same class with the Trump kids. I, I, I'm surprised that's not more out yeah, there. Apparently, apparently it didn't make for good material. 
apparently, apparently not. Apparently, she just didn't want to go down that rabbit hole. But, but what I'm getting at is you're the California kid. You go to University of Penn. How was that first semester in the cold? You know, I didn't have a warm coat my, my first winter <laughs> over there because I didn't really comprehend how cold it actually got. Um, it was fine. You, you stuck it out? You yeah, I really, I, I really like the snow. I really like the cold. I don't. I didn't like going to a school where people wore suits to class and, you know, would talk about Bond Devengers for fun and especially when they were drunk. But um, no, it was it was it was a really eye opening experience on the whole, just because I saw a completely different part of the universe and I can actually calculate a back end deal. So right. Right. And often certain ways. Only a few producers actually can. And and when you're, I feel like it is high school and college, maybe for some people, junior high, but like that era, right? Like your teen years through your early twenties, I feel like that era, whatever it is for you, the films that you watch, the shows that you watch, the music that you listen to, that's what's ingrained in you for like the rest of your life. Right. And for you, like what were like some of the movies you remember watching over and over again in college? Cause you always have those dorm room movies, right? There's the DVD tower, you know, that you you watch over and over. You have friends come over. What, what was it for you? What were a handful? So so first of all, for me, I I should admit this. So the, the university of Pennsylvania bookstore had an incredibly large um, DVD selection. And this is, you know, this is in the years, right. When DVDs were first coming out. Yeah. And I figured out that you could, this is terrible, and I can't believe I'm admitting this. I figured out you could take your student ID and you could use it to charge things against the school bookstore, and it would just come up on your tuition bill as books. To your parents. To your parents. Oh, because it's just through the bookstore, so they don't know what items at the bookstore were charged. Exactly. So okay. I, I, I probably, in four years of college, and I ended up paying them back for this after I admitted <laughs> this, but I, I probably charged about $10,000 worth of DVDs. <laughs> um, to to my student ID, um, which you know, it was, and it was like the Criterion Collection had first come out on on DVD. They, you know, it was just like movie after movie. All the studios were releasing all of their movies. So I basically, even though I was going to business school, I gave myself film school through yeah. this weird hustle that I came up with. Um, and, and what I really remember doing is I remember like picking a filmmaker and then just mm-hmm. watching a block of that filmmaker's films, like whatever I could get my hands on. So. Yeah. For me, for me, I remember like my junior year specifically, I think I bought something like 13 or 14 Robert Altman films mm-hmm. and I would just watch all of them and then I would watch them all of commentary and then I would pick my favorites and I'd watch them again and again and try to study what I missed in commentary. So I remember watching Robert Altman's MASH in Nashville probably like 15 or 16 times and also The Long Goodbye. I remember I picked up, um, they, they had released every Woody Allen film in kind of chronological order. And I remember just watching all of them in chronological order. I remember becoming really obsessed with like old Marx Brothers movies. and Oh, kind of by, by the way, same, man. I'm a huge Marx Brothers guy. I started yeah. young. Like I started like seven, eight, nine years old. I started becoming like super into them. My, yeah. grandpa- my grandparents introduced me to them yeah. and it stuck forever. Yeah, I mean, I, I still think that Duck Soup and Bringing Up Baby are the two funniest movies ever made and no one's been able to top them. So, You know what's interesting about Duck Soup? I don't disagree that Duck Soup is incredible, but I don't know if it's actually my favorite Marx Brothers movie. My Laugh- favorite Night at the Opera. Night at the Opera might be the best all-around film that still holds up, I, but for joke for joke, Animal Crackers is actually my favorite. Yeah. I love how psychotic those early ones are. They're, they're just so mean. <laughs> <laughs> There's so um, many, but, but but like, honestly, if you want to see kind of where the Bill Murray biting oh, totally. humor, it's it's Groucho. I mean, Groucho was the first kind of Murray just throwing out the jabs and the aloofness. Oh, yeah. yeah, no, Groucho, I mean, he's the, he's the roots of Bill Murray, Bugs Bunny, like 
you know, pretty much every psychotic cartoon that a kid would watch these days. Like, it really is just the roots of everything. It's pretty crazy. It, and, I, and it holds up because my seven-year-old and four-year-old, speaking of Night at the Opera, I showed them the, the estate room on the ship. The little, yeah. the, you know, the, the oh, yeah, up, when they're all falling out. The bodies in the ship and they all fall out. And like, what's missed in that is that the one-liners from Groucho in that whole, through that whole bit are incredible. And the timing is absolutely incredible. Also, just to think that like, okay, there are five brothers, but the three could be that talented in the same family is like Serena and Venus level odd. Oh, it's insane. And, and also, by the way, they basically wrote, especially Groucho, they tended to write their own lines and write their own gags. So they would get somebody like George S. Kaufman from The New Yorker, who was, you know, mostly writing these Tony Award winning plays on Broadway. They would kind of come up with the scenario and the dialogue for everybody else. And then the Marx Brothers would just wander in and kind of just do their thing. And you yeah. know, 75% improvised until, until the later films. Later films, they started just following the lines. But Okay, I know this is going deep and the listeners probably won't care, but I got to talk to you because rarely do I meet a Marx Brothers fan. Did you read the book uh, Raised Eyebrows? Um, weirdly, I have had that book sitting on my on my shelf for years and years and years. I've read Groucho's autobiography, Groucho and Me, and I read Harpo's autobiography, Harpo Speaks, yep, but I, never, I haven't gotten into Ray's eyebrows yet. I love it because it's a quick read. And for those that don't know, this is the story of a college kid who's at UCLA, organizes like a film event to show, I forget which movie it is, on campus. And Groucho surprises him and comes down to UCLA, sits and like meets the students. And they develop this friendship. So this like hardcore Groucho Marx Brothers fan ends up developing a relationship with Groucho in his late years. And it's looking at that time in Groucho's life where he had this new wife and a lot of controversy around, was it like elder abuse, the way she drove a wedge between Groucho and his family. And then you just have this like fan who ends up working in Groucho's home, going through his mail, going through all like his archives and stuff and develops like a personal relationship. And he's just watching it all unfold. And I think the book was actually optioned by Rob Zombie. Rob Zombie. And the reason I know this is I used to be Rob Zombie's agent in my former career when I was when I was oh, at W. Oh, you're making the segue for me already, Danny. That's yeah. a great segue. Yeah. So tell yeah, me. And, and, but it's like the two funny Marx Brothers segues I can make into my professional life were that I was Rob Zombie's agent. And he was chasing that book for years when when I was his agent. And you know, people would always say like, oh, you're going to do another horror film. And he literally wanted to raise eyebrows. He wanted to do a movie about hockey fans. Oh. And, you know, like he he's an incredibly intelligent person, really yeah. well read, you know, a real cinephile. And, you know, he I mean, he's got to do it at some point, but he has all of these interests and ambitions that go kind of wider than the core horror business that he built for himself. But he's just a really savvy guy. And then the other funny one is I for years, I've done a lot of projects over the years with the director, Harmony Corinne. And that's been more in my producer life. And we, we did a movie together, The Beach Bum, a couple of years ago. Yeah. With Matthew um, he's a Marx Brothers fanatic. If, if you actually watch most of his films, like that is the roots of a lot of his humor. Oh, and, interesting. And he passed me a great book on the Marx Brothers called Hello, I Must Be Going, which is about, uh, so I think it's a reporter ends up having like a crazy one week whirlwind um, experience with Groucho. And they, oh, they, holy shit. I've never, I've never heard of that. Yeah. Oh, so it's like just literally like just fly on the wall for one week with Gra- yeah. what era? What era of Groucho is this? That's like Groucho and Beverly Hills in the seventies. Yeah. And he's got he's throwing parties and he's got all these celebrities coming over to his house yeah, and they're like singing show, around the piano, showing up on Dick Cavett in a beret. Oh man, it just that whole era just fascinates me. That yeah. whole era. Um, I mean, that, and that era fascinates me, by the way, because um, you know, once again, I grew up in Beverly Hills. Beverly Hills okay. in the eighties. Um, actually felt like Beverly Hills in the 50s and a lot of these people were still wandering around and I 
remember when I saw uh, Warren Beatty's shampoo for the first time, um, I watched that movie and they hit me on this big nostalgia level because that movie was made in what, 70, 72, 73, something, something around there. And, you know, it's only probably seven, eight years before I remember actually seeing Beverly Hills and it still looked the same. And I remember meeting Warren Beatty for the first time and I had just watched shampoo a couple days earlier. It was when we had, we produced a movie called The Report um, when Annette Benning was in it. So we ended up screen, screening it for Warren just to get his take on it and get his notes and everything. And I said, I just watched Shampoo. It reminded me of the Beverly Hills of my youth. And he looked at me, he was like, me too, kid. I'm reading, I just started the book and I, it's like escaping because the title, it's like film, films of a revolution. And it's about like the five films that got nominated yeah. for best film in 67. Yeah. Right. And Bonnie and Clyde is one of them and the graduate. Yeah. And yeah, I'm like learning so much about him just through, through that book. Now, what was the, wait, what was the occasion to meet Warren Beatty? Was it just trying to package a film? No, no, no. We, we, we ended up doing a private screening. Uh, Scott, Scott Z. Burns and I did a private screening of the report for him after we locked the cut, but before we even did the final online on the film. We, we did it over at the screening room at UTA, and he literally, it was, he was the only person there to watch it. It was the two of us plus him and the projectionist. He sat in, not the front row, he sat in the row right behind the front row, so he could lean, lean on the seats in the front row and just stare at the movie for, you know, at the time, I think the cut was about two hours and 30 minutes. We cut it down a little bit after that. Um, and then he came out of the movie. It was just the three of us. And we looked at him, we said, what do you think? And he was like, it's great. I wouldn't change a frame. And we said, oh, cool. And then he goes, you want to hear a funny story? And we said, sure. And he goes, you know, when Mike Nichols was alive, we used to always show each other our films. And he would show me one of his films and he'd say, what do you think? And I would say, well, I think you could probably work out this character arc a little bit more and you could cut down this scene a little bit and you need to hit these jokes in a more of a punchy way and you know I give him I give him 20 minutes of notes or something like that and every time I showed him one of my movies I would say what do you think he'd go it's great I wouldn't change the frame and I would and I would be really flattered and I'd pause and I'd think for a moment and I'd look at him and go you mother I'm not going to say the word on the full word it's on fine. Here, but... you can say whatever you want yeah okay oh, he'd go you you motherfucker you are such a competitive bastard that <laughs> you are telling me that my film is great so that I won't change a frame so that it won't be as good as your film. <laughs> and then you go, yeah, 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 you're probably right. At which point Mike Nichols would kick into an hour and a half of notes. And we go, okay, so what do you actually think of the film? And he go, you really want to know? And we said, yeah. And then you proceeded to give us notes for about two hours. Oh my God, that's incredible. Yeah. But that's like, it's by the way, the, the book is called Pictures at a Revolution. Yeah, Pictures at a Revolution. Yeah. And I, uh, I had to look that up because that was going to bug me. But you really reading that book at so many points in the book, as people are courting writers, courting directors, trying to package their projects, there's this theme that keeps popping up of mm -hmm. organizing a screening, like, because they were really all inspired by the French new wave directors. So yeah. when they would talk and compare notes and, and compare in, in, inspo, they would be like, can you set up a screening of this film that we can sit and watch together? And it's so crazy to think at the time, like here in like the mid sixties, early sixties, you had to know somebody to like pop in a movie. You had, yeah. to, you had to know somebody that could get you the literal reels mm -hmm. to organize it. And that was a sign of clout and a sign of connection that you could actually organize a screening. And Beatty's like, famous for having these private screening parties. You're talking about the 80s Beverly Hills. That's what they would do. All, all the upper crust folks would gather at someone's home and they would gather on the piano and then they would actually screen something. And that's yeah. what they were doing that night. They would just watch a movie at home, which was such a novel experience in, in that moment. 
Oh yeah, and this, there's still an entire circuit of you know COVID probably slowed it down a little bit, but um, sure. Nor, you know, like Norman Lear, for example, he's got his big old screening room in his house, and I've never been invited to one of these things, but I know tons and tons of people who are always like, "Oh yeah, I went to Norman Lear's house the other night. I watched the new Paul Thomas Anderson movie." And you know, there's this circuit yeah. of people, especially people like probably kind of tapping out around that 70s, 80s generation where they all have amazing screening rooms in their homes yep. and they get prints of in circulation movies or movies that are about to come out and they invite over all their friends who are Academy members and they all scream for each other. And, but, you know, I, it's funny that like, that's also weirdly informed something that's a huge part of my process in terms of any project I work on, especially actually the documentary projects. And it's a little bit of a trick I stole from Spike Jones just because we've worked with him for a long time, which is we constantly screen our films for small groups of filmmakers and editors throughout the entire process. So, mm. you know, once we kind of hit the initial rough cut on anything that we're doing, you know, we may do a screening a week um, for the cut as we're working on it from that point, it'll be a different group of directors or editors or writers and, you know, kind of mix and match yeah. who's in the group, but um, we'll just do it again and again and again and just listen to the feedback that we get from people. And it's, you know, when you, when you hear filmmakers who complain about test audiences and how much that ruins their films, this is almost the antithesis of it because it's, we're not showing it to random people in a, in a mall somewhere. We're showing right. it to other people that are hypercritical about the content. And it's just listening to what are the constant notes that we're getting, even if people are giving us suggestions for fixes, it's almost like ignoring, ignoring the suggested fixes and just hearing what's working, what's not working. And it's brilliant. It really is brilliant. And just coming from like the unscripted side that I do, you know, making series and whatnot, that is just something that does not happen. Right. Like, really? you know, you like, you never let any competitive company, any other producers like no. ever watch your stuff. I don't know why it's, it's very siloed in that way, but yeah, in the film circles, like you're talking about and, and what you've done with docs. Yeah. yeah you, you know, writers do it all the time. You know, like I, I even watched this documentary on the making of like Frozen 2 and yeah. they gathered all the best animators and directors of all the Disney films to yeah. come watch early cuts and give notes on the process. But the thought of like, you know, Arthur Smith, you know, who does Ninja Warrior sure. and these yeah, huge yeah. shows, inviting like Mark Burnett or somebody to come give him notes completely foreign to like the unscripted formatted business. Yeah. You know, or like evolution, asking somebody to come in and give them notes on like a, a Vanderpump Rules episode or a Housewives episode is like completely foreign to the business. But yeah, that's where you get the best, the best focus group, right? Yeah. Let's talk about you, Danny, because I know we don't have much time. So you, you were an agent at WME and you were a lit agent yeah. and you come over in what, 2012, you leave yeah. WME and you guys formally launch Vice Studios in 2017. So prior to the launch of Vice Studios, what what was it at that point? Because Vice sure. has many tentacles, right? Yeah. So before you guys formally launched as a quote unquote studio, what was the media game plan at that point? I was primarily representing writer directors when I was over at WME and the William Morris agency before that. A couple of us signed Vice as a client and I spent about two years representing Vice as a client. And originally when I first came in to work with them, I was theoretically, because I was a film lit agent, I was their film agent for whatever film projects they were going to do. And, you know, there was all sorts of different things bubbling up. Some of those, some movies eventually got made. We were, we were very involved in Spring Breakers in the early days and eventually got more involved later on. But what ended up happening was I formed a real relationship with 
Shane Smith and Eddie Moretti, who were running the company at the time, um, Shane being the head of the whole company and Eddie yep. running the creative side of the company. And they started just pulling me into more and more stuff they were working on. So the HBO Vice show got sold. They started pulling me into meetings and conversations about what is that show? What does it look like? You know, how are we actually going to make it into something? We ended up doing a deal with Megan Ellison, Annapurna, kind of at the point that that company was just first coming together. And I think oh, it was yeah. one of the first overall deals that they did over there. So it started turning into what is this kind of wider slate of projects we're going to work on? They started this, they started to play around with other unscripted formats and scripted series, many of which got set up and eventually we killed the deals on because they, that stuff ended up becoming the first year of the Viceland TV channel. A lot of that stuff was kind of years of unscripted series and formats that we had set up all around town. But all this stuff was really kind of birthing around um, 2010, 2010, 2011. And when I first came, when I first came over there, it was, hey, we're setting up all of these film and TV projects all over town. Why don't you, why don't you come here to run this and just do this full time and manage all of this stuff? Because we're, we're all busy being hyper-focused on growing the digital business and the advertising business and uh, the editorial business, which started to grow into the news business and all of those sorts of things. I went over there with kind of the main role they hired me for, which was to really focus on building out the film and TV business. But it was in, at that point, a much more unstructured way. You know, we we did have a division before we had Vice Studios, which was we had Vice Films. You know, right. for all intents and purposes, it was the same, it was the same division, save that Shane and Eddie really had a love of scripted films. Um, we were doing feature documentaries here and there. So in the, in the early days of Vice Films, we, we had done a documentary on Snoop Dogg going down to Jamaica and deciding he's the reincarnation of Bob Marley and um, recording a reggae album called Reincarnated. I remember that. Yes, yeah. I remember this. Yes. Yeah, won, won, won a nice award at uh, the Toronto Film Festival. It was one of the first original acquisitions for Netflix streaming um, before they even had a Netflix originals division. But you know, so we were doing that. We did author the JT Leroy story with a &E Films, which eventually ended up being the first original documentary acquisition for Amazon Studios. Mm. Um, we did a we did a number of kind of newsier, smaller documentaries. We also did we did a Sampali pirate film that was done from the pirates' perspective, um, and it ended up winning the best director, best uh, U.S. dramatic director award at the Sundance Film Festival. That was called Fishing Without Nets. Mm -hmm. We did a black and white Farsi language vampire movie called A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night. Well, um, I, mean, I, I want to ask you because because again, like Vice is so massive, and there's all these different divisions. You running Vice Studios, how many of these unscripted projects and doc ideas are brought in through like folks you have on the on the news side? Because so, to me, like I, I love Vice News yeah. and like, you know, as a guy who grew up on MTV, I always feel like that's what MTV News should have become yeah. and, and evolved into is like Vice News took that slot. It's a, it's a really fascinating question because what ended up happening was we did, you know, Vice did set up, Vice was doing these kind of news shorts with this group of people that ended up becoming the Vice on HBO series. Right. And, and the unscripted slate that I was developing back in 2010, 2011, 2012, which basically became the um, first year or two of the of the Viceland TV network. So that was things like Black Marco with Michael K. Williams, which was originally Black Marco with David Show, but that's a, that's a whole other <laughs> long story. Um, and there's so many, there were so many shows from there, but um, balls deep and things like that. So 
all of these shows were kind of being developed by the same group of creative people. And it was these kind of in-house shooter producers, lots of kids out of college that had been working on digital, little digital series for Vice or a random news story here or there. And you may have had somebody that jumped between the, between the two things. And a lot of these shooter producers may have been working on branded content for Vice, you know, getting hired by some brand to make some web series or right. BT, BTS for some branded content thing. And then next thing you know, they're jumping over to the Vice on HBO show. And then they're going and they're creating an original series that's ending up on that, you know, three years later, because we sold these things to Nat Geo and Annie and a bunch of other places and then killed the deals to do Viceland. Um, right. You know. So, so all of those shows and the Vice on HBO show and the original, I would say like two, two years of Vice News we're all bubbling out of the same group of creatives. Mm. And, you know, and look, it was a much smaller company back then. I, you know, they used to always say, oh, we have 1800 employees or something like that. Most of those were freelancers. Like if you actually looked at the core group of full-time employees in those early, early years, it was like a hundred something people. And, yeah. you know, it really, it really was this kind of hive mind of just interesting creative people who knew about a lot of different stuff and we would just be throwing ideas all against each other and sometimes something would turn into a story on vice on hbo or the eventual daily news show that they created for there though once that happened that's when they started bringing in some real news people um so it would end up over there something would turn into a series idea on viceland for example my head of marketing for vice films was the guy who came up with the show dark side of the ring which is the most which is now the most viewed show on on huge, vice and hugely successful on any &E. yeah yeah exactly and guy evan husney who you know before he was doing film marketing for me was doing kind of like general dev admin stuff for the for the network and before that worked for the alamo draft house you know, the, the people who came up with Vice News and were doing a lot of those early stories and really kind of pivoting the company to more of a news direction were coming out of that exact same group. And then in success, we all started to, we all started to really focus in on what we were doing well. You know, I was, I was very integrated in the team that was focused on the launch of Viceland and kind of putting that network together and developing all of the original content. That coincided with our film deal moving from Annapurna to a joint venture with 20th Century Fox. Mm. And all of a sudden we were having much bigger budgets to play with, you know, a lot more dev money, much bigger, fancier filmmakers that were willing to work with us, along with all the kind of younger auteurs. Yeah. We discovering. Well, that's the question. Like, so you, you have that deal with 20th. When you when you go to the festivals now, yeah. are you are you wearing multiple hats? Are you guys acquiring docs as well as like self-producing and self- Financing. What what is the role the Vice Studios plays in the in the doc world right now? So the the business has evolved a lot over the years in all sorts of different ways. And once again, it's it's streamlined and then expanded, streamlined and then expanded. So there was a point where we were doing a little bit of everything, but a lot of it was ending up on in house distribution channels, which meant that my job could veer in those maybe like. I mean, I've been at the company almost 10 years. So maybe like the first three to four years I was at the company, especially through like the launch of Viceland and having the Fox JV, which we had for four years. You know, my, my job could range anywhere from acquisitions because we had a couple different distribution channels that we right. could get something out on to financing because we actually had a, a pretty large sum of money to finance original projects to creative development and creative production. And we were doing projects where we may be wearing one or two of any of those hats. So we had films we would work on we, where we were only a creative producer. We weren't putting in money. We weren't doing the distribution like 
we, we did a movie with Anna Lily Amrapour called The Bad Batch, scripted film, Jason Momoa's first, first feature film. It had Keanu Reeves and um, Diego Luna and Jim Carrey and all sorts of crazy people, which is actually how we met Jim Carrey for Jim and Andy. And Yeah, I want, I want to talk about Jim and Andy too, yeah. Yeah, and, and you know, we won a special jury prize at the, at the Venice Film Festival for that one, but Annapurna financed it, Neon and Netflix distributed it. We were, we were purely creative producers on that one. Okay. But, then you have, but then you have a project like Jim and Andy where we were the cre- we were the lead creative producers, you know, and I and I worked really closely with Chris Smith on that one. But then and we and we did the physical production services, and it was we were literally using the same crew and the same infrastructure that we used for the Vice on HBO show. And if you look at Jim and Andy, or you look at Fire, and you start going through all of the credits, you start to see a lot of overlap between those films and the Vice on HBO team because right, Chris you, you really were using in house services, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, Chris, and even like DPs and song clearances and things like that. Chris was forming a close relationship with a lot of these people that were around the building at the time. So a lot of those people ended up on those projects. And then on Jim and Andy, for example, we were also the financier, but then it ended up as a distributor. So, But is that like a case where WME or somebody says, hey, Jim Carrey wants to dive into all the footage that was shot behind the scenes? I'll I'll tell you exactly how that one came together. So So we had done this movie, The Bad Batch. Jim Carrey played a mute hobo. So he was only able to do physical comedy. It's still available on Netflix if you want to if you want to yeah. check that out. And it was just an excuse for him to do physical comedy. But when he when he did the movie, he went to a um, silent retreat before he came on set. And then he, where everybody else was staying at th- these kind of broken down motels um, on on the shoot, Jim Carrey basically was like sleeping in a ditch somewhere with some security guards looking looking after him that he brought with him. And he refused to ever speak to anyone on set. So if if he needed to talk, he was just kind of signing at the director and the director was kind of making motions back to him. And he, he would just kind of give like a barely perceptible nod and then he would go do his role and he would do it really well. And there was a guy that he was business partners with at the time called Michael Aguilar. He's produced mostly a lot of great comedy films over the years, but he was also a producer in a bunch of those scripted series that Jim was doing um, the last couple of years. And I, I'd known Michael for years, especially going back to my agent days, I'd put a couple movies together with him and my clients. And he called me up and he was like, look, Jim had a really great experience working with you guys on, on the Bad Batch. And I said, you know, great, really appreciate that. He goes, he and I have some projects that we're trying to figure out and I'd love to come in and talk to you about them. And he came in and he pitched yeah. us, I think three or four movies, uh, scripted films, um, including a, great Brett McKenzie film that the world still needs to see that was, that was really funny, but hasn't gotten made yet. But one of the things he said was, he said, you know, we have this idea for this project that Jim's been trying to do forever. And, oh, man. Um, you know, 20 years. And he has all of this behind the scenes footage from the making of Man on the Moon. And he feels like there's a really interesting story in all of that. And somebody just needs to make a documentary of this footage. And sure enough, they sent the footage over. That's when I, I remember I mentioned the project to Spike Jones and... Spike had a relationship with Jim Carrey and I remember people used to pitch him all the time because he was running Viceland at the time along with with Eddie Moretti and I remember people would sit in these meetings and they would pitch him ideas all the time when we brought this up and Spike just kind of perked up and lit up and said oh that actually sounds really interesting let's let's take that seriously and, I, and to Spike's credit and I, and I really do give Spike credit for this there was a couple months there when when this first came up where we would just be blowing through different project ideas and spike would always say well what are we doing with the man on the moon footage like who, who's doing something with that right and you know i remember for the longest time we were just trying to figure out the right filmmaker to do something with it we were trying to figure out like is this going to become a 30 minute um episode of the vice vice guide to film which was a series we were doing on viceland at the time like what was this thing and then 
like I mentioned, we did this JT Leroy documentary with A&E, got into Sundance. I was at Sundance um, for the premiere and I was staying with Chris Smith, the director. And he, you know, we were old friends. He hadn't directed a, a documentary in probably about 10 years. I Collapse was 2008. This was 2016. Really? It had been that long? It had been that long because he'd become a super prolific commercial director with Smuggler. You know, he was doing, I think, 300 plus days of commercial directing a year. Then at, at that point over like the last, you know, two years before around that period, he had become an internet entrepreneur. He had created he had created an app that for iOS that was gaining a lot of traction and getting a bunch of fancy people backing it or investing in it or whatnot. And he was super focused on kind of being a tech mogul. And, then, and, and for people that don't know, Chris Smith, also the director of the Firefest doc as well that you guys yeah. did, did executive together. producer of tiger king yeah. director of 100 foot wave i mean probably one of the most prolific doc doc director producers working working today yeah. but it, you know and so at this point cut back to 2016 he hadn't done anything in eight to ten years and i remember he because we were staying together he came with me to all the premieres and parties and everything we were doing around jt Leroy, and he looked at me at some point he was like god i forgot how fun it is to actually have have a movie and do all the stuff around it and see the audience reaction everything and i said i got a movie for you and it was it was it was kind of just this impulsive moment of i remember you know i i was such a fan of american movie his his first documentary and you know it's probably one of my top five favorite documentaries of all time it's it's on like every list right it's on every list of like greatest american documentaries ever ever made it's on every and and it's a documentary about a guy trying to make a film and it just being a total debacle and there was this connection that just happened in my head of wait a minute that's a that's a document a verite documentary about somebody trying to make a film that was a debacle and this is jim carrey trying to do this crazy thing on a film set and it's not going well and it's going sideways and and i said to him you know we may have this jim carrey project and I went to Toronto with uh, Spike maybe like a week or so later. And I remember we were in some meeting and Spike was just like, we're, we're screwing up. Like we need to figure out a director for the man on the moon documentary. And I said, I think Chris Smith wants to do it. <laughs> I just remember, remember Spike saying, really? That's actually a really good idea. And, and Spike was also friends with Chris just socially. And we got back to LA and we pretty much just met with Chris right after that and got Chris on the phone with Jim Carrey and, Jim Carrey kind of gave us this, you know, people have been trying to do this documentary for years and no one's really been able to crack it. And Chris said, well, let me, you know, let me just go through the footage and see what I can do. And Chris and his editor at the time, Barry uh, Polterman, who edited American Movie, went through the footage for a couple of weeks. And he, I just remember Chris called me up one day and he goes, I think it's a movie, which is very, which is very yeah. Chris thing to do. And then, and then yeah. but what really opened it up and where I'd say Chris is, Chris is a genius and, you know, obviously that footage is great and a real gift, but where I'd say Chris is just operating on another level is he did that one day interview with Jim Carrey. And we had originally, we had this list of 80 subjects that we were going to interview and we were just going to go through, you know, we were going to get Danny DeVito and we were going to get Judd Hirsch and Milos Forman and everybody that was involved in the film. And it was going to be this film about man on the moon. And it was going to be the world's greatest behind the scenes documentary. Right. And Chris did that one interview with Jim Carrey and Chris is, you know, I'd say he's a, he's a Mark Marin level interviewer. He is, wow. he's very quiet, but he's one of the best interviewers I've ever seen where huh. 
he, he can just get stuff out of people and stuff, you know, even if, I mean, Jim Carrey is actually a really good interview subject, but he hadn't done interviews in a number of years at that point. But, but just to gain, just to gain he, the trust, yeah, right? He's really good at gaining trust, getting in there and getting people to just go places that you wouldn't think they would normally go. And that interview was supposed to be a couple of hours. It ended up just being all day long. Everybody was wiped by the end of this thing. I think you can kind of see it on Jim's face by the end of that movie, because we have the start of the interview and we have the end of the interview bookending the film. And Jim just looks like he's gone through some, you know, MDMA influenced therapy session by the end of that thing. And, you know, Chris goes, I think we got our interview. And I was like, okay, who are we interviewing next? And he was like, no, I, let me, let me play with it. But I think, I think we may have gotten our interview and, you know, lo and behold, he cuts this thing together with the footage. And then he also really had the innovation of starting to bridge in all this other stuff from Jim's life and clips from his other films and mm -hmm. um, old Jim Carrey archive and things like that. And I remember him coming to me and going, I, I figured it out. It's not, a, it's not a film about man on the moon. It's a film right. about Jim Carrey. And That's right. That's right. Because because had you put in the rest of the ensemble cast, it would have just felt like a making of the man on the moon. Exactly. Right. All right. So I only have five minutes left with you, Danny. Um, before we go, what is this American Gladiators documentary that I saw announced for 30 for 30? What is this? This, this is right up my alley. So, so one of my favorite documentaries that I saw in the last couple of years was The Amazing Jonathan, directed by Ben Berman. And yeah. Have you seen that film? I have, and I, it's it's, and I remember seeing the amazing Jonathan in Vegas many yeah. many years ago, and fascinating. So I I, I want to hear all about this. Yeah. So so Ben, somebody I had a relationship with a couple of years. He actually reached out to us while he was working on the amazing Jonathan and asked asked us if we would produce it. At that point, that was before he started to get the twists and turns in the project of other production companies and Simon Chin trying to make the same story and it becoming a much more meta thing. So when he first came to us, it was just about Jonathan, um, and it was a much more straight ahead straight ahead thing you know I, I i regret doing this and and i don't say that too often but i you know we ended up politely declining doing it but we kept a relationship with him and after that film came out i was just so blown away yeah that we started we started to really riff on what project could we do together next and like i was saying where a lot of our best ideas kind of start with the spark of somebody internally at the company because there's just so many great minds at the company there's a guy um, who's actually, he used to be on the branded entertainment side of the company and the sales side of the company. Um, but now he, he's, for the last couple of years, he's actually worked for our group named Andrew Freston. Yeah, and, I know Andrew, sure. Oh, great. And, and Andrew actually used to work with me at uh, WME back in the day as well. So yeah. we, Andrew and I have worked together for 13 years. We went over to Vice together um, around the same time. Andrew called me up one day and he goes, you know, I've been reading, I've been um, doing a deep dive, Wikipedia articles, whatever, whatever I can get my hands on, on the history of American gladiators. And I think there's a really crazy story there. And, you know, there's this, there's this kind of larger than life personality who created the show, Johnny Ferraro. And um, he was a construction worker by day and Elvis, an Elvis impersonator by night. Though Johnny, I think, to, to his credit, always says he wasn't an Elvis impersonator. He did an Elvis review, an Elvis tribute show. Um, <laughs> right, right. But you know, he, he came up with this thing, and and this this actually connects back to the to the William Morris days. But when Andrew started to really geek out about the history of American Gladiators, I suddenly flashed back to when I was at the old William Morris agency. There was a guy who ran the unscripted department, Legend of the Business, named Mark Ickin. Yeah, and Mark Ickin's been on the podcast. Oh, amazing. And, and Mark used to always tell anybody who would listen, um, the show that changed the face of unscripted television was American Gladiators. And, and he would always tell people the story that, you know, he represented that show for, I think he used to say eight years, and they were running around town, you know, trying to get this thing sold and every nobody got it. 
everybody thought it was way too weird, way too out there from what they normally saw. And finally, they get the show sold. It becomes the biggest hit, you know, reality tele unscripted television hit ever and it just completely changes that business and changes that game and I felt like I liked the idea of an outsider going against the grain of what the entertainment industry says would work right. and coming up with that really outside the box idea coming from a totally outside the box place and just creating that thing that ends up striking a chord with audiences out there on every level like I have yet to meet somebody who, who hasn't said to me American Gladiators, I was obsessed with that show. And, you know, it really was a show that I don't know what it is about it. People, you know, maybe people in Leotards doing weird. I think, I think it's a you know, brain or something, but I think part of it is, and, and I'm, I'm a professional wrestling fan. Uh, so I think part of it is like people actually end up really enjoying professional wrestling who don't expect it. And, and it had that theatrics in it. Yeah. You had, you branded all of these all the gladiators as characters, right? Yeah. So it was like blending this world of like role play and theater with athletics that yeah. we just had really never seen before, right? And it was something the whole family could watch, you know, and the people that watched it, you know, that talk about it now are the people that were like, you know, eight, nine, 10 years old at the time, like I was, you know, it was, it was, it was all, all these different tones and the sex appeal on top of it. It was like, yeah. if you put like Baywatch, pro wrestling and Monday night football and you throw it all in a bag and that's what it was. Right. Yeah. And I don't want to give too much away about the story and all the twists and turns and everything, but like one thing I'll tell you as an example from what you're saying is when NBC first put that show on the air, they didn't, you know, there was nothing like it. They didn't know when to air it. So they aired it after Saturday night live and the show was a flop. And then at some point they were going to pull it and they said, you know, let's try it in a different time slot. Let's try it on Saturday mornings after all the Saturday morning cartoons. Right. And sure, sure enough, lo and behold, it just caught on like fire because just there was nothing like it. There was no comparable. It was so outside the box that it was just about hitting that right audience at that right time for the concept to catch on. It wasn't that it was a bad concept. It was a great concept. It was just not hitting the right audience. That's and right. So when, when we kind of learned about all the details of the story and Andrew and I met Johnny a few times and we started to meet some of the other gladiators and producers and people that were involved in the project. And just started to realize what an amazingly rich cast of characters we had and what fascinating personalities we had going into all of this. And just one person after another who came from an unexpected outside the box place had. Oh, just the backstories of the gladiators themselves. Yeah. Like, like what was going on? In, yeah, totally. Gemini and Nitro and Lace exactly. and Blaze. Like what, what were their backstories? And now all of a sudden they're like TV stars. They're like Venice Beach, like muscle people. And all of a sudden yeah, now they're like. pro football players. Right. Or, Right. You know, one of them was a former professional model. And it's just like, how do all of these people end up together in this cast of characters? And I, I just said, when I saw it, I said, Ben is the only person I know who's going to do this justice, who's not going to do this in a traditional expected way. He came up with a brilliant um, kind of way to attack all of the story. We took it out to everybody across town, you know, worked with um, Ryan McNeely at WME and Josh Braun at Submarine together to get this thing out to the to the community and ESPN just got it and they said look we love this we want this to be part of 30 for 30 and um, amazing you know that was a year ago so I'm so excited when does it come out do you know it's gonna be next year sometime we're kind of figuring out you know ESPN's figuring out the exact best scheduling for it but um it's a it's a really unique one I, and it's and just like a hilarious special heartbreaking really really fascinating project Danny, I wish I had more time with you, man. This was fantastic. First time meeting you. I really appreciate yeah, you, you doing this. No, oh, my pleasure. Was this it okay? Was yeah, this was great. 
Awesome, man. Well, look, I look forward to the documentary and congrats on all the success, man. Oh, thank you so much. Have a good one. You too. Take care.